The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Looking into verse um, 17, particularly in the reference to mercy there, and um, uh, wanting to make uh, this point that... um, well, surely the quality of mercy here is not strained. Uh, it is also not just uh, vague, um, undifferentiated sympathy, but it is, a, as we said, a religiously qualified sympathy, concerned with sympathy um, in terms of... Uh, is a sympathy directed towards sufferings as, the, as sufferings have a... Uh, carry a, a moral threat, uh, have, involve a moral dimension. Now, we can say that uh, because the writer says that the, that the mercy functions to propitiate sin. See, he's not just a merciful high priest, but the mercy... Uh, his, 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 his mercy and his fidelity function to propitiate sin. That means then, you see, that there must be some connection here between the suffering which evokes mercy and sin. There must be some um, connection between suffering as it elicits sympathy, and sin. So the link here, you see, is not simply suffering sympathy, but suffering sympathy sin. And that carry-through, you see, to sin, if that were not involved, sympathy would be satisfied would be content simply with removing suffering as such. That is all the sympathy would be concerned for and would not carry through to the propitiation of sin. So there must be some connection here between suffering and sin. Therefore, um, it is a suffering connected with sin and has a pointedly moral or religious character. Now with that in mind, look at verse 18. Here now we get the notion of temptation. Very uh, emphatically coming in. And that reference to temptation, I think, we can see now, pinpoints what is the connection between suffering and sin that we have already analyzed. And the writer says here, since Christ was tempted, 
when he suffered or in what he suffered, since Christ was tempted, he is able to aid those who are being tempted. Now, just on the, on the translation question here, um, the uh, this um, participle, aorist passive participle, carries it has a causal force, or perhaps uh, uh, the, uh, has the force of the means involved. But I think it's better to translate because he was tempted. Um, you could also, I think, um, in that he was tempted when he suffered. Or by being tempted when he was suffered. When he suffered. Now you see, that uh, is contrary to the way in which the statement is taken, for instance, in the NIV. Anybody have an NIV in, in, in front of you? Uh, read, read that. See, that just reverses, as does the RSV in the New English Bible. The New American Standard uh, um, renders uh, as we have suggested. Uh, the issue here, you could say, is, is does this participle have a causal force or a temporal force? You see, I think the other translations suffer from... Pardon the use of the word... Um, Failing to uh, to see the flow of the of of the context here, the accent you see when when you when you when you clear away uh, the qualifications, the point here is that 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 the tempted one is able to help the others who are being tempted, and then the suffering comes in to qualify the notion of temptation, rather to give the temptation. Um, give that a temporal force, cuts down that connection between the fact that uh, Christ is able, the connection that the writer wants to make here, that Christ is, is able to help the tempted because he himself was tempted. So what that um, enables us to see here is that Christ's suffering... Christ's sufferings were not sufferings in general, but they were specifically temptation-sufferings. That is, in view here are sufferings which for Christ himself were a source of temptation. And not, you see, the other way around. It's not that he was tempted, and then that became, uh, and, and having to be tempted, he suffered. But um, something is, I think, uh, the, the reverse brings out a much deeper dimension. Uh, Christ's sufferings are for him a source of temptation. I'll pick up a question. Therefore, you see, as we've already tried, we pointed out in, uh, in talking about the translation, 
because that's true in the case of Christ, he is able to help those in an analogous position. That is, those who are tempted to sin by their sufferings. So, uh, we can say that it is the temptation aspect of suffering in the case of Christ that becomes the ground of his ability to aid others. This is why he can help them in their sufferings. Now, I realize that doesn't say that here, uh, but as we look at other passages, we'll, we'll see that that is surely the implicit uh, dilemma here, or the, the implicit consideration here. And... and set in the background of, of uh, the larger concern of the letter that the, the dilemma in which the church being addressed finds itself uh, under conditions of persecution and suffering that just don't make sense to them. So that um, it's now, uh, and as those um, sufferings comp- conspire then to, to tempt them to give up the faith, and the writer is wanting now to pinpoint that... Uh, um, because in his sufferings Christ was tempted, therefore he's able to aid others who are so tempted. Yes, go ahead. Can you illustrate Christ's sufferings? Uh, the, the thing that's in both that you're pointing to here illustrates in terms of the last week of his life, the gospel accounts, how those events were this. Right. Um, I appreciate your, uh, the, how the question comes up here, and in fact, it's, that's exa- we'll address that as we look uh, a little bit later on at the passage in chapter 5. That question will come up right there. I think there, in 5-8 passage, there's even a clearer... I think you're, right, you're quite right in, 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 in thinking of the gospel narrative um, lying in back here, but it's even more explicit in the chapter 5 passage. Um, just... Uh, further here on 2.17, um, notice the use here of the perfect tense, pepanthen, from first principal part, anybody? Okay. Um, perfect aposco. Uh, it's suffering, in other words, which Christ has behind him now, but continues to carry with him as a past experience. We can say that what is, what, what is uh, um, uh, elicited here, or what is um, implied by the perfect tense, is the, is the memory of suffering, particularly as suffering gives rise to temptation. The memory of those sufferings enable Christ to know the force of temptation, the force which temptation, uh, or the force of temptation which suffering exerts on sinners. So his mercy then reaches out to the sufferer in his moral capacity. The mercy of Christ reaches out to sufferers 
in that situation where suffering threatens to result in sin or actually does result in sin. So the mercy reaches out particularly to those tempted to sin by suffering. And the writer says here also that this mercy is an incentive for the priestly activity of propitiating sin as that results from temptation. The mercy becomes an incentive for that activity, a distinctly priestly activity of propitiating sin, particularly as sin results from temptation. And uh, we can just remind ourselves here of the point that came up last week. Uh, The present tense here uh, seems to have in view not the once-for-all propitiatory sacrifice in during uh, his the time of his suffering on earth, but to the ongoing application, uh, the continual application of the propitiatory power of his sacrifice, as that now takes place. So the the, the thought here again. Uh, if this isn't already clear, is that what's brought into view here, particularly if we're accenting the present um, correctly here, um, what is in view here is the activity, the memory that the exalted high priest has of suffering from his own experience. And as as that suffering gives rise to temptation, the memory that the exalted um, Christ has of that suffering involving temptation to sin and so that he is now able to help those who are tempted. Uh, This thought also, I think, uh, is appropriate to observe. That the writer here is not just thinking about some suffering in distinction from other as if only some suffering gives rise to temptation. But I think think we should rather to recognize here a, a more integral notion of suffering in the sense that all suffering is seen here on its moral side. Suffering as an occasion to temptation. All suffering as an occasion to sin. So that perhaps uh, we helpfully interpret here um, the suffering in view here is what the Apostle Paul has in mind in Romans 8.18 when he categorically, sweepingly talks about the sufferings of the present time. The sufferings of the present time. So all suffering under the present order of things as they can become an occasion for temptation to sin. Now, turn over, uh, keeping these thoughts in mind, turn over to um, 
to chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 4, 14 through 16. The writer says, Since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our, com- our confession. Verse 15, For we do not have a high priest not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we do have a high priest tempted, katapanta, in all things like us without sin. Therefore, let us come with boldness to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for literally opportune or timely help. Help that is timely or opportune. Now, uh, the writer makes this statement about the exalted Christ as exalted high priest in verse 14. Verse 15, then, may be taken as guarding against a certain inference that we might draw from verse 14. A mistaken inference, it would be. Notice the connection, anyway, uh, between 14 and 15. Ugar, agar, ugar echomen. Uh, But the inference, I think we can fairly see 15, we can construe 15 as guarding against the inference that could be drawn from 14, that the exalted nature now of the Son of God and his status as heavenly high priest, that because of his exalted nature and status, that in some way detracts now from Christ's ability to sympathize with men in their sin and misery. The writer says what we're saying, that the writer says what he says in verse 15, uh, to guard against the notion that because of who Christ is now as exalted high priest, um, he is therefore no longer able to empathize with us in our miserable state as sinners. And the point, then, that he wants to make is that Christ can sympathize with the weakness of believers. He can sympathize with the weakness of believers because he was tempted, katapanta, in all respects like them, without sin. Now, I think it's important here to to see that the category of weakness, asthenia, the weakness spoken of here is applied here to Christ as well as believers. It's, it's, it's involved in their being made like him. So that the weakness, the category of weakness here, doesn't point to sinful human nature, but rather to human nature as susceptible to temptation and sin. Human nature as susceptible to temptation and sin. Uh, The weakness here, as by implication applying to Christ, is is close to what, to the writer's use of sarks. Flesh in 5.7, where he talks about uh, the days of Christ's sarks the days of his weakness, in other words. And uh, what he's getting at here, perhaps helpful to remind ourselves, uh, is 
can, uh, I think, be referenced or um, explained by what Paul, way Paul expresses himself. Romans 1, 3. Christ uh, coming uh, according to the flesh, born according to the flesh, or uh, more, even more specifically, what we find in 8.3 of Romans, that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. The likeness of sinful flesh. So that the, the writer, you see, is, is wanting to, to, uh, to walk that narrow, uh, that razor's edge, attributing a full, weakened humanity to Christ. A, a weakness humanity, and yet without that uh, attributing uh, sin positively to him. So that uh, brings me then to this comment, that the what the writer says at the end of verse 15, koris hamartias, without sin, that is a restriction, you see, not on the weakness of Christ, not on, he's not toning down on the likeness of temptation, he's not saying that somehow the degree of temptation was different for Christ than for us, But the, uh, the, 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 the without sin uh, is a qualification solely on the outcome of the temptation. That it did not result in sin. We could perhaps gloss here what the writer is saying. Uh, tempted in all points as we are, yet without the result of sin in his case. So that the writer in verse 15 then is, is, is um, wanting to emphatically assert a true, genuine analogy, a full analogy between Christ's temptations and those of believers. Christ has sympathy with us in our weaknesses because he knows these weaknesses by experience. By experience. And again, it's worth noting um, the perfect participle uh, in, of the verb of temptation there in, in 4.15. He is the one who is now in that state of having been tempted. He carries with him uh, that uh, temptation, that the past of ex- temptation by experience. And so you can see here also uh, the ethical character or the morally oriented character of the sympathy comes through. That it's not just any compassion, but a religiously qualified compassion. Uh, the point here, you see, is that weaknesses, and perhaps we should have said this early, to talk about weakness, as the writer does here, is to be talking about suffering, as that weakness 
condition entails suffering. Weakness, suffering functioned as a source of temptation in the experience of Christ and as a source of temptation these weaknesses elicit his sympathy toward others. So that his mercy now reaches out to believers as tempted, as potential sinners. And notice then uh, the, 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 the emphasis on that in verse 16. We come to the throne of grace so that we might receive mercy and grace. That is what is pictured in verse 16 on the throne is the forgiving Christ, the Christ who ministers the forgiveness of sins. And you can see, I think, too, the connection between the very end of verse 16 where he talks about the favorable help or aid and what he says at the end of the in, in chapter 218, he's able to come to the aid to help those who are being tempted. So the writer uh, is wanting to say, uh, he said at the end of verse 14, let's hold fast our confession, and he wants to make the point then, uh, as we look at Christ, that there is a full analogy in his experience and our experience in the demand uh, to hold fast, the need to hold fast confession. Well, I think, you know, it's particularly what, what, what we haven't uh, really gone at in depth is this category of weakness. And I think that that, um, that you can work through the whole of the gospel narrative from that point of view. See, it, it, it's very easy uh, as you read the, narr- the gospel narratives, and it's important, of course, not to, to lose sight of this, to be, you know, to be grasped by uh, the miracles, and yet, even the miraculous activity is within a context of weakness. And you're, you're pointing to the, um, the situation in the, in the desert um, uh, where uh, that, that was a heightening kind of, of the principle of weakness that is experienced, you th- see, through something so mundane as, as hunger. But um, that, was a, uh, that was a dimension that hunger is a part of the of the suffering, um, as it as it's involved in, in in the in the in the confrontation of temptation that that takes place in the desert place. So, and I think you could apply that at uh, you know other places throughout the gospel record. Now, when we get into five, seven through ten, the last passage I want to look at, you'll see. Uh, now we'll see. I think a very a specific allusion of the writer to the to the gospel narrative. Let's read together with verse uh, 5. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, uh, but the one who spoke to him glorified him. And then the words of Psalm uh, 2, You're my son, today I've forgot, I have begotten you. Uh, as also in another place, he says, Psalm 110.4, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Then, who 
in the days of his flesh, and now we have a very uh, a complex construction, in the days of his flesh, um, with prayers and petitions to the one who was able to save him from death, offering such prayers and petitions with loud cry and tears, and having been heard because of or from his godliness, his, his reverence, his piety. Although being a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been perfected, there's our theme uh, verb, he became to all who obey him source of eternal salvation, having been designated by God priest according to the order uh, of Melchizedek. Now, I read the uh, 7 through 10 together with uh, 5 and 6 because the verses that immediately proceed here serve to establish, or excuse me, these verses help to establish the main point in the immediate context and that is that Christ meets the qualification of a true high priest. Because, for one thing, he did not appropriate this office in a self-assertive fashion. He did not go on a campaign, as it were, to be high priest. But he was called by God to it and submitted to him. Now, specifically, you can note, verses 8 and 9 bring together three ideas. Suffering, obedience, and perfection. Suffering, obedience, and perfection. Applied uh, to Christ. And the thought, or the, the complex of thought, uh, here is this, couple of, of dimensions. The perfecting, the being made perfect, is the outcome of a course of preparation Christ had to pass through on earth. Perfection is the result of a set of experiences endured by Christ when he was on earth. As the writer says, beginning of the construction, in the days of his flesh, referring to the period of his earthly ministry, certainly. Further, this work of preparation that Christ goes through, the, 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 the set of experience, that aims at his identification with his people. It involves his identification with them. As they are described, notice how they're described in verse 9, as those who obey him. This is who Christ's uh, people, or those that he is associated with, this is how they are to be designated as those who obey him. So, 
we can say that the specific point of identification here is an experiential knowledge of obedience. The experience of obeying. So having himself learned obedience, he's source of eternal uh, salvation to all those who obey. But now to say that uh, is to bring us then to appreciate the specific character of the obedience that is learned by Christ. That is quite plain now and, and must be appreciated. The obedience, while it is certainly ethical in character, is not, you see, some kind of general moral development. What we're told here is obedience to the call of suffering, as we might put it. It's obedience qualified as obedience that is learned from things which were suffered. We must then not lose sight of the connection here between suffering and obedience. So looking then at the larger picture, as we've delved into the other passages, we can say in this passage now, chapter 5, we have the positive counterpart The positive counterpart to what we saw in the other passages in chapter 2 and chapter 4. In the earlier passage, we can put it this way to bring out the contrast. In the earlier passages, suffering is a school, we can say, in which Christ learned the strength of temptation that is inherent in suffering. Suffering as a school in 2, in 2, 17 and 18, 4, 15. Suffering as a school in which Christ learned the strength of temptation inherent in suffering. Now it comes out, you see, suffering as a school where Christ learned the strength of obedience which overcomes the temptation that proceeds from suffering. So now you see we have the strength of obedience set over against the strength of temptation. Obedience as that which overcomes. And that's um, um, the key and important uh, point that comes out here. Just to round off here, let me make a couple of uh, further comments that... Um, bear on the exegesis and, and um, reinforce uh, the basic point that we have just uh, been making. Uh, look, first of all, there are two things I want to touch on, uh, one at a little greater length. And the first thing is a point that's come up in the, in, in the questioning. Um, the reference that we have in verse 7 to the fact that Christ offered up prayer and supplication or prayer and petition with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him, ek thanatu. Now, 
um, that seems, uh, the allusion to the gospel materials seems unmistakable there. What is not quite so clear, however, is exactly what the writer has in view here. And so uh, there is some difference in understanding among uh, exegesis, among the exegetes. Um, among um, uh, the proposals, and I think we can see these as, as more frequent, um, some propose that is that what the writer has in mind here is the prayer of Gethsemane. If we look at it just in its Matthean um, account, uh, the, in uh, the prayer in Matthew 26, 36 and following, uh, particularly verse 39, uh, the prayer you recall, uh, Jesus asks, uh, if possible, let this cup the cup of the um, culmination of suffering on the cross immediately in front of him, if possible, let this cup pass from me. Or others have suggested that in view is the loud cry on the cross in Matthew 27, 46, and 50, or the cry of dereliction, so-called. I think, however, to be preferred, much to be preferred, uh, is another proposal that um, uh, I think is, is, is less frequently entertained, but I think more likely on target here. Particularly when we look at the context and especially uh, factor in that in verse 5 and 6, we have the psalm materials, Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, that bring into view the exaltation. Then we, uh, in view of that, I'm saying, we ought more likely to think here, not that the writer has in view, not a prayer to be delivered from death in the sense of somehow Jesus praying that somehow he might escape death, but that rather what we have here is a prayer specifically for resurrection, for exaltation. You couldn't build a whole case here, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's worth noting that the writer doesn't say, apothenatu, save me from death, spare me the experience of death, but it's to be saved ekthenatu, out of death. Um, so, I think in view of immediate and broader context in, in Hebrews, um, that the, um, the prayer, the petition ought to be seen uh, along that line, as we put it, a prayer for resurrection. I think uh, what one further exegetical detail that uh, confirms here is that we are told... Not simply that Jesus prayed, that he offered prayer. It's not simply pros enekos, but it's kai es akuthes. He was heard. He was heard. 
And that, uh, the verb here, ace akuo, is used regularly with reference to answered prayer. Answered prayer in a couple of examples, Luke one thirteen and Acts 10.31. He was heard, we're told, further because of what we could translate here as his piety, his reverence, his godly fear. Um, I think uh, beyond those observations, going back into the gospel material, turn for us a, a moment to John 12. John 12, 27 and 28. Um, that I think... Um, is the, the dimension that's particularly consonant with what the writer is saying. Now my soul is troubled. There's the suffering, uh, the turmoil. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but it's on account of this that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Therefore, a voice came from heaven, and I will glorify, I, I have glorified, and I will glorify again. So that you see, what we have here is a prayer for glorification, is the category. In John, regularly used uh, with the resurrection in view. So the point... Uh, then is that the prayers and the petitions are not an ex are, are put it positively the prayers and petitions as the writer has them in view here um, and using something like John 12 as, as an example they are expressions of the obedience that Christ was learning as the writer goes on to say we ought to see them that way prayers as expressions of learned obedience rather than as expressions of a, of a mood of uncertainty or, or weakness that he had to unlearn. The prayers and petitions, to put it more pointedly, are an index of what he had learned, not of what he had to unlearn. Unlearn. They are the calling out of the anguish and pressure of suffering and of faithful submission to that suffering for deliverance, for resurrection, for glorification. So that, um, that um, those observations on, on, on that issue. A second point. Um, what about the learning that is mentioned here? We haven't drawn attention to that yet. He learned obedience. This learning 
is not a matter of acquiring something new in principle. As if Jesus had to learn something that was not there before, uh, not yet in his possession, or, or, to, to, uh, uh, or even more off the track here would be the fact that uh, Jesus had to, uh, the, the learning involved uh, acquiring uh, of what was opposed to what was before. We can say that, you see, because of chapter 10, verses 5 through 7, where in uh, referring to Psalm 40 with uh, some of the exegetical uh, difficulties that are there, despite those, um, uh, the point, you see, that, that comes out is that as, as Christ comes, he is the one who has come to do your will, O God, verse 7. I have come to do your will, O God. So that is firm. He knows, he comes into the world knowing that he is to do the will of God. So that what we have in view here, uh, the learning here is not a, a, a learning of, of a coming gradually to recognize that, as if he did not know before, but we can say that what is involved here is a practical learning. A learning that comes through experience. a learning uh, through action of what is present in principle. But affirming that lets, at the same time, um, uh, accent as well that this, this experiential learning of what is already present in principle is learning that takes place in a situation in a school, if you will, where obedience is contrary to what is natural in Christ. Now, you might wonder about putting it that way. What I'm simply wanting to get at here, it is, you see, natural. It is the instinct to avoid suffering, to recoil before suffering. That is part of the genuine, full human nature that Christ assumed. To avoid that suffering for which he knew himself from the very beginning to have come into the world. And we can say that is, is, is what, uh, in large part at least, this, this learning of obedience through the things suffered involved. The, the, I think we can even put it this way, the overcoming of the, the, the natural, instinctive uh, tendency to avoid suffering. So in those ways, uh, then the, the, um, um, the, the, the categories, particularly of, of, of suffering and temptation, um, give rise to the notion of uh, qualifying, help us to understand what is involved in this whole matter of Christ being made perfect. Made perfect as a faithful 
and merciful high priest. Any uh, questions, uh, comments? Yeah, Bruce. And Is that the point? Yes, very, very well stated as far as I'm concerned. Um, I think that you, you brought out what the... It, it's the... Uh, you know, all, all human existence since the fall in a covenantal context conspires, as in the case of Job, to curse God and die. You could look at it that way. Um, that, that, that in one way or the other, more, more, uh, more uh, trivially or in a more everyday sense or in a more climactic sense, um, the whole of... Uh, uh, the whole of our experience is a is a suffering experience to one degree or another, which is to, which which uh, in one way or another uh, would draw us back from obeying, from the obedience that we're called to. Yeah, I think that yeah, you you do have to make a distinction here between between suffering and suffering. Um, um, or to different different dimensions of suffering. I think that um, you know the the suffering that that gives rise to temptation and then to disobedience that in a sense produces its own further suffering. But even there, you see, Christ is there with his forgiveness. He propitiates the sin of the people. So the, see, the issue is it, it's not only um, that he aids those. Uh, who in their suffering are tempted to sin and keeps them from sinning. That's true. But it's also where, where it actually does carry through to sin. He is, he, is, he is there to help, to aid as well. In other words, that he is saved from untimely death for the death that God has, Christ has. Yeah, yeah, I... The, uh, that's an interesting proposal. I hadn't heard that one before, I don't think. Um, I, I guess my reaction, if there's any value in appealing to John 12, that uh, I think the writer here is concerned with, with something very climactic, whereas I think your proposal uh, reduces the climax, as it were. It, it, it brings it back to some... Uh, less ultimate point in his earthly ministry. But um, it's certainly something worth thinking about further.